This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of May 8, 2017, and this is Michael Howe welcoming you to episode 428 of Defender Radio. I always try and keep a structure to interviews for the podcast. Whether it's a talk with a scientist and I need to make sure I'm using the right terminology and asking clear questions, or an advocate who maybe isn't too comfortable with the media yet, it's a good practice to have an idea of where the interview is going and try and keep a steady rhythm. Then there's the times I talk with Biff Naked. Biff is a Canadian rock star, author, cancer survivor, and social and animal advocate. Her music career, which spans more than 20 years and includes multiple hit singles and extensive tours, made her a household name, but her advocacy has made her an icon. From speaking out for fair treatment in the welfare system for British Columbians, to advocating for a fur-free Canada filled with coexistence with wildlife, Biff is always ready to stand for what's right. Our interview was originally scheduled to talk about the launch of the new paperback edition of her popular book, Ibificus, and update us on her busy life of advocacy and music. But our one-on-one candid interview wound its way through finding hope while recovering from cancer, understanding how she looks at a world that is sometimes filled with darkness, how exactly it is that she makes compassionate choices and helps others do so, and answering a slew of questions from the Defender Radio audience. It's probably easiest if you just have a listen for yourself. It was a rainy day on Monday, June 29th, 1998. Lansdowne Park in Ottawa. You were on stage singing, uh, uh, I think it was Spaceman, and I got kicked in the head in the pit. What? What have you been up to since then? You got kicked in the head? Of course. By who? I don't, it was someone crowd surfing, I don't know. Oh, I think you told me this story. <laughs> I feel I so have. bad. I remember playing Ottawa many times. 1998, were we playing with Simple Plan? Uh, no, that was before them. It was uh, Green Day, Foo Fighters, Tea, oh, tea Party Headlines. That I was Edge Fest. Yeah. Oh, I see. So much fun. <laughs> I've been up to absolutely the same thing ever since i've never stopped doing exactly the same thing well i have not been kicked in the head since that day so well, at least not by a person fantastic yes yeah. exactly well i, I mean a couple of dogs maybe a coyote you know a few things like that but you know and it's hard for me to believe that was i mean that was almost 20 years ago i know and so yeah i've just never stopped working i mean the only time I got off the work train, which I used to call the crazy train, um, was my cancer diagnosis. And I was so happy. <laughs> I was like, great, <laughs> I finally get a vacation. And, you know, that was a testament to my job at the time because breast cancer, uh, going through treatment and being home, meant that I was home with my dogs 100% mm-hmm. of the time. And got to take a nap every day with my dog. So I was like, this is the greatest thing that's ever (laughs) happened to me. And literally, that's the truth. And I still say it because it's, it's still true. I didn't, it wasn't my health crisis at all in my life because I got to be with my dog. Really. And, um, you know, I had just gotten married at the time. 
So that was, and cancer is very revealing. It shows you who you are and who everyone else is around you. So mm-hmm. it was an important, it was an important thing that needed to happen in that time in my life. Well, and I read that you uh, you recorded something. Was it your spoken word album? No, that record that was recorded in 1996. Oh, that geez. was in between Ibificus and Purge. And I have to hand it to my manager who just says, here's a microphone, go record whatever you'll want. <laughs> and I was like, this is great. But uh, no, I recorded The Promise. Uh, it was an album called The Promise. And we did that during uh, the time that I was home. And I did that with Jason Dar. He was in yeah. uh, Neurosonic. And then I worked on a lot of music with him, which was fantastic. I loved working with him. He's one of those, uh, he's like a mad professor. <laughs> you got to love people like that. Yeah, no kidding. He was great. I learned a lot from him, and we we made a lot of music. So it was good. You know, I, I felt that it was, uh, you know, again, I couldn't view breast cancer as a bad thing in my life at all, uh, just because I, I got the opportunity to stay home for the first time ever. Well, and this is a very scattered way for us to start the interview, but it's it's also good to sort of dive in like this. Um, it's it's interesting that you say it wasn't a health crisis in your life. Um, do you have you had a health crisis? Would you say uh, you know thinking back to your oh, younger definitely. days? Oh, No, I was actually a healthy kid. I had uh, you know normal kid stuff, chicken pox and whatnot. Um, but my kidney failed in 2012. I didn't know it was failing. I was like, just had a stomach ache all day, I thought. And uh, wound up going into the hospital and being stuck there uh, for 12 days. I had a stroke in my kidney and then I had heart surgery. <laughs> and and it was amazing. It was amazing. And that was definitely my health crisis. So that was after breast cancer. And I just thought, man, this is so cool. You know, that I get to have these experiences and and kind of just live through them and, and figure out, you know, what that feels like. You know, what does it feel like to be, you know, dying on the operating table? What does it feel like to have real organ pain as compared to, uh, you know, bone pain? You know, like, I don't know. I kind of think that a lot of people cannot differentiate between different things like that because it's all just it all sucks but i'm i'm a science geek well i'm sitting here you're talking about how you find you know inspiration and and meaning behind what are pretty you know horrific sort of medical issues and i i get a hangnail on my thumb and spend my entire day cursing everyone around me for causing this horrible thing to happen (sighs) uh is Funny. is that something? So do I though. Uh, hangnails, that's right, because it's hangnails. You catch, you keep catching them. And I don't get any sympathy from my wife. I mean, that should <laughs> should really be the highlight of that. Uh, now, is that is that attitude something that you picked up you know, early on in life, or is that something that you grew into? And I mean, and that's you know, uh, in in your book, uh, I because in in the reviews in particular of the book. A lot of people talk about how you have found strength in a lot of these issues that bring down people so heavily. And and I think, you know, reasonably so. They are pretty 
emotionally and physically uh, daunting uh, situation. So at what point were you able to start looking at it in that way? I don't know. You know, I think it just comes like it's how I was raised. I mean, my parents were, you know, great optimists. My father was a a real bleeding heart socialist. And and my mom was uh, a a girl who kind of just lived every day in gratitude. That's how they were. And as geeky as I probably found it when I was an adolescent, I realize, and I think a lot of people do as we get older, that I have become my parents. I am <laughs> so much like my parents. And um, it would never make sense to me, you know, to, to be down on something that's going on. It's just, I, it's just never been my personality. I think that it's partly coping technique. And it's partly because, you know, I think everything's basically pretty funny in yeah. life, you know, because you can always see the big picture. You know, there's there's so many uh, things that are happening in the world that are just, I mean, terrifying, horrific, terrible, terrible things going on in the world. You know, me in Vancouver, uh, you know, with a with a kidney infarct. You know, honestly, it's not a big deal compared to genocide, compared to all these things that are happening. You can't say infarct and not expect someone to laugh. Yeah, it's a weird word. I like saying it, though. <laughs> infarct. Yeah, it's a weird. It's a great band name, but it also sounds like a German restaurant. Well, it could be both. Yes, it could Maybe be both. Maybe the guys from Rammstein could invest in it. Great band. <laughs> <laughs> I'd go if they did. All right. So, and, and you know what? The last time we spoke a couple of years ago, it was very much the same. Is sort of very easy to look at something in life and, and maybe sort of laugh it off. Um, or not even sure. laugh it off, but laugh with it. Um, yes. And that's something I found. So, I, uh, you know, I worked in, in the news business uh, for about a decade. And you get that really dark sense of humor. Uh, and yes. you find things to laugh at. And that's a coping mechanism. Because, you know, you, sure. it's sort of the way you say it is you can't cry when you're laughing, uh, in a sense. Um, so is that part of it or is it the, like, it, it almost feels like the way I look at it is from that dark laughter and you seem to have a bright laughter. Well, I don't know. I just think that there's always going to be a, a silver lining in everything. And my experience is always good that comes out of everything. Absolutely. There's something, there will be something that's good, even if it's, just a perspective, even if it's uh, someone that you meet in a bad situation, you know, maybe you've learned something from them. You know, it's, uh, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't work in victim services, you know, so I can't say that would be true for everything in life. I don't know. But as far as my experience goes, I just think that there's always a, a silver lining. Now I'm all confused because we went way off topic way quick. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, looking, um, talking about sort of your life personally, um, what I find interesting, and you sort of started talking about it, was up until you got your breast cancer diagnosis, your life was very go, go, go. Um, and what was it like sort of uh, transitioning from this, Onslaught, and I and I know the life of someone touring is is hectic at best. Like it's just, it's a new place every day, very little downtime uh, uh, at home. Right. Um, 
And then all of a sudden, like you said, sort of like you have breast cancer and you're getting treatment and you're at home with your dogs. How did you necessarily cope with that too? Um, like, did your body sort of say thank you or was it a, a stressful transition? Oh, it sucked 100%. And anyone who's going through any kind of cancer treatment will tell you. Plus I struggled a lot. Um, you know, people always, uh, people are generous with advice, even strangers. Mm. And everyone had an opinion uh, when I was diagnosed, whether or not I should do chemotherapy, whether or not I should uh, start smoking weed, whether or not I should uh, just do nothing and do holistic medicine. I mean, I was inundated with people telling me all these things. And uh, ultimately, you know, I'm a science geek and uh, I just listened to my oncologist. I just did what I was told to do, basically, like a, like a sheep. <laughs> and I'm glad I did because it, it saved my life. Absolutely. You know, it saved my life knowing what I know uh, about genetics and breast cancer and, and the type of tumor that I had. 100% it saved my life. So going through something like chemotherapy is extremely taxing on a body. Because basically your bone marrow is super busy uh, trying to, you know, cope and trying to make make happy cells because everything is getting killed. And, um, you know, I went from being this uh, extremely underweight, very fit, uh, raw food vegan to gaining 30 pounds in six weeks and only wanting to eat yam rolls and rice. Cause that's all, that's all I wanted. Yeah. So, you know, I had been a raw food vegan for so long. I think the first time I went through neutropenia, um, which is the, your white blood cells kind of really plummet, uh, right before you get your next round of chemotherapy. And I'm telling you, it was fascinating, uh, because right before I would go into my second or third round of chemotherapy, I was so hungry when my body was recovering and those cells are regenerating. I mean, hungry like a pregnant woman, like beyond, like so ravenous, so ravenously. I would have eaten my own arm. I was so hungry. And all I wanted was rice. Yeah. For whatever reason, I hadn't eaten rice or basically anything cooked in a decade. And, uh, I don't know if you've ever been constipated, but it's it's not fun. So it was quite a transition. And um, but you know what? It was fantastic. I just listened to my body every day. What did it want to do? Mostly, it wanted to eat, uh, you know, delicious vegan cookies and uh, cereal with uh, vanilla soy milk on it. And I just listened, you know, and did. Did what I was supposed to do to to be healthy and to uh, to stay healthy to not be so immunocompromised. I worked the whole time because that's all I knew how to do. But I was happy because I was working at home and I was with the, my two dogs. Yeah, well, and it's it's interesting listening to you talk about the um, the science of it uh-huh. and sort of in in the same breath then say listening to your body. Oh yeah, and those seem to be very contradictory concepts, um, particularly in an era now where we've got people sort of in this weird heightened fear uh, of things that we 
didn't really question before because science told us it was okay, like right. vaccines. <clears throat> right. um, so how do you balance that then? And I know you're also a very spiritual person. So you sort of have like this, this hard science um, through, you know, hypothesis and observation and uh, testing, experimentation, review, etc. And then the, the sort of I, I, almost intangibles of, of how you feel about other things. Oh, sure. I mean, you have to find a balance that works for you in life. And for me, it was basically, I looked at it like a life or death situation. You know, I can, I can go inward and uh, try and chant the cancer away. But ultimately, I know for sure it's not going to save my life. You know, period, the end. There was no question. So I, I knew that I had to do this, um, this treatment. I wanted to live. And, uh, and I wanted to do what I had to do. So the other side of that, the, other, the flip side of that coin was to try and do everything else. Uh, to honor, you know, what I was experiencing. Uh, and those, that was a lot of side effects and, and trying to deal with that, you know. I mean, it's one thing to say everybody goes bald during chemo, but what you don't, you know, what people don't talk about is how, how sore, how physically sore your scalp is. And uh, from that experience and how you get rashes and how you get, you know, a mouthful of sores. Uh, without doing anything, or how your veins collapse in your arm. Uh, I had a surgical port implanted under my collarbone, and I mean, that was there for over a year. It developed a blood clot, and it was just like, I mean, there's just so many different things that can happen while you're going through something uh, that you're just earnestly, you know, trying to be a good patient and, and save your own save your own butt, basically. Um, and it, you know, of course I'm a, again, I'm a nerd. So I thought it was all super interesting <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, it was, uh, it was very interesting and I loved meeting the other, the other people in the chemo ward. And I'd meet a lot of women who didn't, you know, didn't really understand what their bone marrow was busy doing. And they didn't understand the differences between their uh, chemotherapy drug or a biological drug. I loved being able to know the differences and being able to just talk to them and, uh, and connect with people. It was, it was amazing. And I think that a lot, of, uh, a lot of people, men, women, kids, when you meet other patients uh, going through the same thing, I mean, it, it really connects you and you never really lose that. Absolutely. That's, um, and it's, it's a notable, I'd say, attribute of who you are that sort of, you you not only accepted that it was happening and you know obviously it was not easy i don't think anyone would ever say it's easy but you you right. found a way to cope with it and to get through it but you also then used your own experience sort of to interact with the world around you and the people around you um you know again personally if i'm you know having a bad cold i don't want anyone near me i want to hide uh where <laughs> you're, you're, i think you are actually like my literal opposite in some of these ways um, <laughs> But you, you know, you reach out and you start meeting people and helping other people feel better while you yourself are going through this. Oh, sure. But I also think it's also being a performer. You know, I, I don't know how to do anything else. And uh, having to perform every, every day, you know, uh, on a tour, for example, I don't know, I think we used to do 
probably 300 shows a year. And uh, there was no cold. Like, it wasn't allowed to not do a show. You know, we had, a, we had a tour bus. We have, you know, six people on the bus. They all have to be paid. Everyone has to eat. We have to have fuel. The show has to happen. Like, there was no not. I've never canceled a show. Yeah. Ever. You know, so it was like not not being able to cancel a show is like, you know, going through chemotherapy, telling everyone everything's great. Yeah, I'm cool. We're good. And then performing, you know, and basically I think that that, that was part of what made it um, doable for me. You know, I think that just part of being a performer was good practice going into uh, having having breast cancer as a public person, you know, I didn't, it's not like I could be anonymous mm-hmm. and, and walk my dogs. I was, you know, I was still just naked, but bald, <laughs> but bald with all my nails, fingernails falling out yeah. 30 pounds heavier. You know, it was, it was great. You know, I always say, I wish I could be a chemo surrogate for people who are afraid to do chemo. Cause there's so many people who are, uh, extremely, um, extremely fearful about uh, medical treatment, mm-hmm. and you know I'm kind of not. <laughs> so if they had surrogates, I think that would apply for that show. Well, and I certainly think you you kind of hit the nail on the head when you said a lot of people don't understand what's happening, and it is. It's you know it, it's it's very intimidating. Um, my mom had esophageal cancer a few years back oh, uh, and was successfully yeah. treated, but. I mean, you Google oh esophageal cancer and you start seeing things like survival rates. Like that, that's what comes up right. first. Sure. Uh, you're, you're, uh-huh. you're not hearing, this is how we're going to treat it. And this is what you're going to do. And no, like you're seeing like these mm-hmm. hard stats. And I think that one at the time uh, for the surgery she was having was something like a 5% five-year survival rate, which meant that 95% of the people with this diagnosis didn't make it past five years. Um, Unbelievable. And, and again, very fortunately, she uh, she did get through it very uh, very well and is uh, mm-hmm. doing quite well now. But um, fantastic. Yeah, it's the fear of not being able to understand it really does lead to a lot of problems. And I'm going to use that to segue into animals. Um, one, yeah, you are very outspoken on a number of issues, and I want to talk on a number of those issues. Um, but obviously, you know, I, I have to say animals at least like five times an episode, uh, for this to count. Uh, uh, of course. At what point did sort of wildlife and animals, I mean, you're obviously a longtime dog lover. Um, uh, it's one way that you and I connect. Uh, but yeah. how, at what point did you sort of understand maybe that fear was playing into how people perceive some of the, the wildlife around them? And at what point did you decide that you would be able to maybe speak out against that? Well, you know, I think that um, anyone who is a, an animal lover can basically, you know, love all animals. You know, I don't think most people don't really uh, differentiate. And I think with wildlife particularly, everyone thinks, Animals are beautiful. In the wild, people ooh and ah and gush over how beautiful they are. And, um, you know, people love to see uh, footage of of baby animals with their mothers. And, you know, I just don't know why there's a disconnect for people when they don't do everything to protect them. Um, It's hard. You know, it's hard to figure out. 
and this, this is in every country all over the world. Um, you know, it's hard for people on the right to understand the people on the left. And basically that's how I look at um, particularly wildlife and people who, um, who advocate for the protection of wildlife. The people who don't um, really don't get it. And, and that's okay because, you know, if we encourage dialogue and, and keep talking about it, you know, eventually everyone will get it. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a really, it's a really difficult thing to understand. Um, I have a lot of friends who are in animal activism and I don't know how they do it. Uh, because for me, it would get, I would just feel so frustrated a lot of the time. Uh, if I was up against people yelling about their <laughs> right to wear fur coats and, uh, I just don't, under, I can't understand at all. Um, so it's, it's hard, you know, it's hard not, it, it's hard to be coming from a place of non-judgment and it's hard to live a life where you are trying to be an open-hearted person and, and then have to defend wildlife and the right for wildlife to exist really in freedom. So I don't know. Yeah. Something that I consider, um, you know, with my, my deep whiskey thoughts that I get is, um, that the experiences that have made us who we are, um, are not the experiences of everyone else. And I think that's very much sort of mm-hmm. that concept of non-judgment that you were talking about too. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Like I didn't go uh, vegetarian or vegan until I was 30. Um, mm-hmm. So for 29 years to me, right. it was okay. And it wasn't a all of a sudden, well, now I'm going to do this. Uh, you know, it took 29 years to get there. Um, so that, that sort of almost a strange amount of patience I think is necessary in some ways sure. uh, to understand yeah, sure. that we, we are, we're just from different places and we may mm-hmm. not understand things the same way. That's right. Yeah, it is. It, it's, you know, it's always interesting how people uh, come into their, I guess their fully evolved selves. I think that we are, no matter how old we are, we're always trying to be better at whatever. You know, we're trying to grow, we're trying to learn, we're trying to evolve. I think sometimes it takes people a lifetime, you know, to figure out uh, what what they want to do with their life. I mean, there was a, a story I had read. Uh, I was probably 25 or so when I read it, and it was about a hunter in, I don't remember, like Arkansas or something, some southeastern uh, state. And he had gone from hunting uh, for sport his whole life to turning it around and becoming a vegetarian. And I remember just marveling at this story that I read and thought, wow, you know, this guy is very brave to, to speak out against all he knows. And that's all his family did and all his friends and his community. That was their deal. And he was the only... Uh, vegetarian, like in the whole town or whatever yeah. it was, and was ostracized. And I remember thinking, you know, that took him a lot of courage. And at the time, I was a vegetarian, um, which was kind of just gradual for me. I was a vegetarian in my early 20s, and 
you know, eventually it just didn't make sense to, to, I didn't eat yogurt. I didn't drink milk anyway. I never ate cheese. So it was like, I guess I am probably supposed to be a vegan. And that's kind of how it happened. Yeah. But to this day in my circle, in my family, I'm the only vegan. Mm-hmm. And the only vegetarian. And on tours, you know, my entire career has always been that way. <laughs> so I would have to forage for my own food, uh, which I prefer. <laughs> because that, I mean, that's a democracy. You know, everyone else, uh, you know, ate pizza and chicken wings on the tours. And I would, you know, get a baked potato or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, you know whatever I was doing, and it was fine. It worked for everyone. Yes, yeah, green salad yeah, and French but, fries, right? Yeah, that's yes, always. Yeah, and then when I went raw, that was a whole different, different animal. That was being a raw vegan was easier for me on tour because uh, I could always find a banana. I could always find an apple. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was pretty easy. It just it was easier. Yeah, and that's. Uh... I, I was uh, in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. Uh, I don't know if you've oh. ever been there, but it, it's beautiful. Absolutely yes. stunning area. Uh, the mink yeah. farms kind of ruin that, but otherwise, absolutely yes. beautiful. Yes. Um, okay. And I would go into town for dinner. I was there for about a week, and I'd go into town for dinner and go to, like, Boston Pizza and say, make me a pizza, and then don't put anything oh. on it. Uh, That's right. Because, like, there's, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a... sauce and mushrooms. Yeah, it's a, it's a tiny little town. Uh, they yeah. do not have... The specialty, you know, here in Hamilton or for you no. in Vancouver, I can, th- you know, yeah. throw a stone and hit five places you can go. Um, That's right. Now it's raining again. I told you. Ah. I'm blaming you. Um, <laughs> it might be me. Yeah. Something I wanted to talk about uh, is celebrity mm-hmm. advocacy. And, you know, I, I was just speaking with the Animal Legal Defense Fund for what will be last week's episode. Right now it's this week's episode. Um, Mm -hmm. about sort of advocacy in the age of Trump. Um, And what we're seeing, I think, what I am seeing, I should say, is this pushback against, you know, you hear the term Hollywood elite come up a lot. Um, You hear, you know, celebrity liberals and things like that. And there seems Mm -hmm. to be this opinion amongst many people, uh, specifically or particularly those who tend to lean rightwards uh, in the political spectrum, who say, well, you're, you know, you're just this person, um, so your opinion shouldn't really matter. They say, you know, so, oh, Biff Naked, you're just, you know, a singer. Your opinion shouldn't matter about this political stuff. But you're very, you're very involved in, in all sorts of political activity. Maybe not, you know, traditional party politics, but in terms of uh, various types of advocacy, um, you know, a lot of social, uh, social programs you advocate for. How do you feel? when people start sort of saying that kind of stuff, maybe to you or about people, you know, well, you know, I think that any of us, if we have an opportunity to get behind something in whatever way it is, whether it is putting it on our Facebook page, whether it's calling our mother and telling her to turn on her television to watch, you know, an interview or a rally or whether it's going to a rally or a March um, I think anything that we can do is good. And I think that, you know, regardless of who it is, whether they are a nurse or an elementary school teacher or an actress in Hollywood, I think that it's important. You know, if something's important to you, you know, you should share it no matter what, what your job is. And uh, I always feel kind of badly that 
I can't do more. Um, I feel a lot of time my schedule gets in the way or my job gets in the way. Um, I get asked to do a lot more things than I am able to do. And then, of course, there's my manager who just says, all you do is work for free. So you can't, you can't <laughs> keep doing this because you have to pay your rent and, you know, you have to pay for your plane ticket to come here to, you know, start a, a tour or whatever it is. And so, you know, it's hard to find that balance when you want to do everything. And I just think that no matter what, uh, what a person, uh, what their tax bracket is or what they're doing, if, if someone feels passionately about something, they should speak up for sure. And just sort of the, the critics be damned or? Uh... Well, I mean, they can't, it doesn't really matter what people say if you're helping someone. You know, I, I don't find uh, the, the animal advocacy daunting like i used to get lots of uh derogatory comments on facebook if i would post animal rescue and they would be like eat a sandwich go have a you know i love i posted a picture just last week is a perfect example there was a a baby pig it was like some picture some some video somebody was petting a baby pig and i put it on my facebook page you know, I, I fly under the radar. I really do. People pretty much know me. I'm not very confrontational. And, you know, I just I'm kind of peace, love, and happiness. I don't post a lot of inflammatory things. But somehow these people feel it's okay to comment on my page and put, it looks good, it tastes better, or it's cute, too bad I'm going to eat it. You know, stuff like yeah. this. That, this is actually, you know, it's and I don't get too incensed by it because I know it's it's just it's nonsense you know it's immature um people can they've called me names before you know eat a sandwich bitch and you know all these things and that doesn't really bother me to be honest with you but when I did the welfare food challenge and when I encouraged people to speak up uh for a living wage or talk about uh, raising the welfare rates, particularly here in Vancouver. I mean, it, I get slammed so hard, and and people uh, slam the poor. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, they go out of their way uh, to make sure that they, you know, chime in with these incredibly terrible things to say. And that really got to me, especially the first year that I was involved with Race the Race, which is the organization here in BC. I was so shocked. I was so shocked. I can't even tell you. I just couldn't believe it. And it, it was it was just shocking to me uh, how much people really hated the poor. They hated uh, people who had mental health issues. They, they were being derogatory about single moms. They were being derogatory about sex work. It was just wild to me. And I realized then that this was an issue that was triggering for people. Why would people, normal people, who are, I can see their profile on Facebook. I can see they're a mother of three who goes to soccer practice with their kids. Normal person. Why would this normal person be so triggered that they would have to post hateful, hateful shit? What is it? Like, it was fascinating to me 
And I thought this is a really important issue more than anything else, more than talking about hunting, more than talking about being a vegan. This is the issue that pressed people's buttons. And I couldn't figure out why, but I thought I have to keep, I have to keep doing this because for some reason this upsets people and I'm going to explore that. And I'm, no matter what, that makes me feel more protective of these people that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they're down on their luck. They're, you know, they're not able to eat. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just the facts. <laughs> it's yeah. not like I'm making it up. You know, they can't eat. And people just kind of go, oh, well, you know, they're, they're lazy or they just, you know, cheat the system. And it's just like, holy cow, I can't even, I can't believe it. So that's something that really got me fired up, I have to say. And uh, I look forward, I look forward uh, to, the, to things like Raise the Raise and other initiatives. Uh, I look forward to trying to get the word out and, and trying to encourage people to stand up, you know, really stand up for their fellow, fellow person, their fellow neighbor. Well, and that's uh, the the raise the rates one. Uh, I I really like that campaign as a whole. And the part that, and I think it's the same one. That's the one where you eat for a dollar a day. Well, it works. Last year, it worked out to three dollars a day. It's basically okay. what you know they live on less than six hundred dollars a month. Uh, at the end of the day, this is you know when it breaks down, that's what they can eat for food. It was twenty one dollars per week what they yeah. can spend on food. And uh, it's very difficult for people to do that. And even for me, uh, you know, as uh, as a vegan person, it was totally, totally difficult. Difficult, you know. Yeah, well, and that's where you start buying, you know, bulk food that necess- isn't necessarily healthy, simply oh, because yeah. it's cheap and filling. Exactly. Exactly. And you start looking it's, at calories rather than nutrition, I guess. Oh, it was terrible. Yeah, and not, and you can't afford coffee. You can't afford almond milk. Mm-hmm. You know, because you need to buy rice, you need to buy, you know, a couple apples. It was really interesting, but uh, more importantly, it was uh, it, it was important to to keep that dialogue going with uh, with people. And there's something I've been hearing more about and reading more about, and and, uh, and I am very very clear on this when I talk about it that you know I am a uh, a, a white male cisgender born into an affluent family in an affluent community in Canada. Um, so I am privileged up the wazoo uh, and I'm aware of that, but I'm I'm still very much learning about the basics of some of these social issues um, sure. is intersectionality. So how, you know, you're talking mm-hmm. about uh, uh, welfare programs and food banks, mm-hmm. um, but that ties into for instance, LBGTQ um, uh, rights, and it ties into some animal welfare, and it ties into the environment, and all that comes together in different ways. Sure. Uh, how do you perceive some of that? Like, is that something that you, you're thinking about when you're doing this? Uh, because you do sort of, you, you have that broad spectrum of things that you talk about. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. You know, mostly it's because I, you know, I have a soapbox for a job. Mm-hmm. So I kind of think it's some, again, something, you know, is important to me. You know, I have to have a big mouth about it. I have to, whether it's, you know, writing letters to my member of parliament, whether it's, uh, you know, attending 
rallies or, or conferences. I just think it doesn't really matter again what a person's job is, what their what their class is, what they you know, how they were raised, what color they are. If you have a voice, use your voice. If you're passionate about something, um, even if it's a group that you don't represent yourself, if you're passionate about speaking up for others, you should. That's all. I mean, that's all it is. It's really simple, and it should be simple. You know, it should be simple. Well, it all comes from that sort of open heart compassion you were talking about, too, eh? Oh, absolutely. And I think that everybody's the same in that way. And, um, you know, that's just, again, how, how my parents were. Uh, so it's how, how we were. I mean, my, you know, my, my parents were missionaries, you know, that my dad wasn't, uh, we didn't live in a palace, you know, they were, they were nice, nice Methodist kids. So ultimately, um, they just kind of raised their three girls to, to be, you know, bleeding heart socialists like they were. And, uh, and I'm, I'm always really happy for that because, um, you know, I just think that it was a, it was a great, uh, a great introduction into, into life. And, uh, you know, I had a really, really well-adjusted childhood. My adolescence was a little messed up, but that was not my parents doing. Um, but I just think it was, uh, I live my parents' example. You know, they, they showed me that example with their own work and their own advocacy and their own activism uh, with the civil rights movement in the States. You know, and I, back, you know, back when my parents were my age, mm-hmm. you know, my, my dad probably didn't know, that, you know, anything about, he didn't know about his specific gender and uh, how he uh, should self-identify, you know, that, that just really wasn't uh, in the forefront of their minds in that mm-hmm. generation. So I think that a lot of people um, that are older than us are trying to, trying to learn, you know, again, it goes back to as we grow and as we go through life, we're always evolving, everybody, you know, even the hunter that turned into a vegetarian. And even though, you know, even even someone like my late father, who I could, you know, be able to tell him, hey, Dad, you're, you're a uh, cis, straight, white male. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, and that's, it, it's incredible. It, as, as far as we still need to go to consider how far we have gone um, yeah. as uh, sort of people of the Western world, I think is in some ways quite remarkable in other ways it's it's sad that we had to go that far uh that like that wasn't sort of the way it should be um and considering how far we still have to go but it is it is ultimately you know the people uh like your parents like many others who stood up for so long and just said this isn't good enough um that's and like you said we can do better every day uh -hmm. yes we can and to make your manager happy uh we do need to talk about the book uh, it has just been released as paperback, which is huge uh, in the publishing world. It's huge. Uh, going from yeah, it's so cool. Like going from a successful hardcover and then being re-released in paperback is a significant step. So, um, I, I guess 
how does it feel to sort of say, you know, I, I wrote this thing and now a publishing house has had so many people have bought it, we want to keep selling it because uh, so many people like it. Like, what, what, how do you respond to that? How do you deal with that sort of emotionally, oh, I love intellectually? It. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I don't even know how else to say it. It's so cool uh, that, you know, that those people that work at HarperCollins and my manager really, I mean, they, they believe in me. They believe in my ability to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's something that I don't take for granted. I can't actually believe it. You know, when I started uh, working with my editor, Jim Gifford, I mean, I didn't even know how to make italics. <laughs> you know, I hand wrote everything. So to work with words was I can't imagine me, your poor like, editor. <laughs> oh, I wrote everything in all caps if I wanted to make something emphasized oh, okay. because I didn't know how to make a talent. Yeah. So he, he would email me and go, yes, people think you're shouting. <laughs> and I go, no, they don't. <laughs> Nobody thinks that. They know very well that I'm not shouting. But, you know, it was, I laugh now because uh, I just, I didn't have, a, I didn't understand word count. So I just, yeah, it was, it's very funny. And uh, I'm working on another book. Ooh. And uh, this, this book is uh, about cancer. Ah. Yeah. Now, is, and, is, it, is it also uh, autobiographical? Like, or, or bleh, I don't know what I just said. Is it also an autobiography? There, there you go. Well, you know, ultimately my experiences certainly come into it. Uh, but really, it's not necessarily about me uh, you know who is my audience i always ask myself that and i think that the book i'm working on now um hopefully uh will take the take the fear um the scariness out of uh out of a, a cancer diagnosis wow. it's just going to be kind of my own words That's... kind of like kind of like a DIY getting through it kind of <laughs> do kind it of yourself book. cancer. Yeah, I think so. Oh, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. A, a, a novelist told me once, uh, when I was, uh, telling her how, how the editing process was and, uh, and how probably 200,000 words were cut out of my book. And mm-hmm. uh, she said to me, she goes, well, that's your own fault. Because if you write a novel and write your story as a fiction, they're not going to edit things, stories out of it because it's a fiction. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, that's like a genius idea. I never even thought of that. But uh, I still haven't ever started to write a novel. But we'll keep you posted. You should probably do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> although I, I refuse to be your editor, just so you know. Um, I, 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 I can't believe it. <laughs> uh, no, I, I didn't know. I didn't have spell checking. Oh, no. I just didn't have them on. Like, I just didn't know. I didn't know. I, yeah. As, uh, you know, a professional writer, I, I'm weeping on the inside. Um, <laughs> now, we do have, we got some good questions from the audience uh, we can go through. Oh, good. Um, so I'm, I'm going to do these in a certain order because I know um, okay. how I want to end. But, uh, you know, there's there's one. It's it's a little convoluted, but it's I think how do you speak about 
animal rights and the horrific physical torture they go through. So when you are talking about, you know, fur products or perhaps, you know, animal testing and stuff like that, what words do you use to describe it? Are, do you talk about it in sort of that graphic sense or do you, do you come more from a place of compassion? What's your strategy? Well, I mean, ultimately, just any, anything that you say is going to be graphic. Because if you're being honest, you're talking about, um, you know, terrible things that are happening uh, to a little being uh, that are unnecessary. You know, that's the, that's the bottom line. Like, what's the root of what you're trying to say? What are you trying to convey? So, for example, animal testing in cosmetics, uh, which is a, a campaign that I um, talk about through Humane Society International in Canada. And they're trying to ban animal testing in cosmetics because it's totally unnecessary. It's archaic. It's not, it's not needed. And there's so many countries in the world where this has been banned. They don't do it anymore. They've done it enough. Like they don't need to do any more testing. Um, so that's something that just, you know, is easy to talk about. If you're going to go and you're going to buy cosmetics, turn the bottle over, look and see. Just look. If it's tested on animals, don't buy it. It's simple. You know, if you're going to buy a winter coat, why would you buy a coat that has feathers in it. This is a big thing for me. I don't understand. You know, do they think that the ducks and geese just give them their feathers and walk back into the meadow? I mean, I think that's how people think. I really do. Same with wool. You know, it doesn't, sheep aren't happy. They're not happy when they get the haircut that leaves them bloody. You know, there's lots of different things. I think people just, their brain doesn't go the rest of the way in story. So, you know, down jackets. I don't know. It's really easy. Just don't buy one. Buy a different kind of jacket that doesn't have down. Buy a different jacket that doesn't have, you know, a dead animal's fur on the collar. Like, it's just really simple. So it's very much asking people to make a, a conscious choice. Well, it's an easy choice to make. You know, nobody... Nobody really wants to see an animal suffer. Really, they don't. Like, they really don't. So I always say, well, then don't buy, don't buy that product. Like, it's super easy not to do it. Yeah. Um, so that's, I guess, how I would talk about it. They should buy something like Wooly <laughs> that, hey. doesn't, that doesn't use any animal product. Yeah, and I've got my woolly in the closet, oh, uh, although it hasn't been quite cold enough to wear it lately. Yeah. Uh, but I'm looking forward to next winter. That's right. Because uh, I'll be toasty exactly warm. Right. Uh, someone's asking, do you reminisce about the old days of Gorilla Gorilla and the cruel elephants on Granville? All the time. Absolutely, I do. I think that everyone always is nostalgic for the past. And, you know, the cruel elephant holds so many memories. It was a, ba- a venue in Vancouver. Uh, when I first moved here with my Winnipeg band, Gorilla Gorilla. And, uh, man, it was, it was awesome. You know, we, we just had so many shows there. There's so many memories. I feel like I kind of became an adult there. Um, Tri Pig from SNFU put me on his shoulders on the stage. And uh, it was a, a moment of great triumph for me. It was saying a duet 
And uh, I really felt like I had arrived. Yeah. So this is, <laughs> so well, cool. that's, you know, I, I even think, you know, like about a coffee shop that I used to spend a lot of time in. Um, and it's, it's funny how when you look back, you can identify those places that at the time, it was just sort of a thing you did. And then retrospectively was really sort of where you became who you are in a number of ways. Yes. Uh, someone's Absolutely. asking about your favorite vegan. They spelled favorite wrong, so we're going to assume they're American, so I don't burst a blood vessel. Uh, favorite vegan snacks and makeup? Huh. Well, my favorite vegan snacks, like, honestly, would be, like, a banana uh, or popcorn. Like, I I never really got into the fake meat, uh, which is probably, I remember there were tofu hot dogs uh, at a, at a barbecue in Winnipeg in like, it must have been like 1990, I remember this. And at the time, someone had said, we want a tofu hot dog. And I thought, no, I don't, I don't want to eat a tofu hot dog. I would never eat a hot dog. So I don't really want to eat something that is like a hot dog. I don't know. It just was weird. So I never really got into it. Um, and as far as vegan makeup goes, well, there's lots of different vegan makeups on the marketplace. I think that sometimes it gets frustrating because when a company uh, starts getting popular or big, um, you know, because we seek out cruelty-free makeup. You know, NYX is cruelty-free, Lime Crime. Um, I'm trying to think of all these. I think one's called Young Blood, Pure Minerals. I don't know. There's lots of different ones now but then a big company will buy them up because they have a better distributor uh kat von d uh the the tattoo artist model actress she has makeup and that's cruelty free and it's super fancy and really really beautiful so i ha- i save my money <laughs> <laughs> so that i can buy because it's not drugstore prices but it's worth it yep. Um, and it, it feels good when you know that you are purchasing something that hasn't been tested on animals. Absolutely. And we actually have uh, recently partnered with a company called the Green Beaver Company, who does a lot of uh, personal oh, hygiene. Nice and, yeah, a lot of personal hygiene yeah. stuff. And they're all uh, completely yeah. vegan. Uh, so Very I'm cool. waiting for a couple of things from them myself. Uh, Yay. And on that note, someone asked, uh, they follow you on Instagram and you post yummy looking food on a regular basis. Have you ever considered making a cookbook or a mini cooking show? Uh, I bet a cooking show with from Biff would be mouth, super awesome. From your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I say to that. From your mouth to God's ears. I think there's been a lot of shows, a lot of cooking shows. Um, whether they're on YouTube or Food Network. Uh, I think in America they had a cooking show that was like a tattooed vegan lady. I I forget now what it was. It was like, it was pretty hip and stuff, but then I didn't see it after a while. I don't know. I think that they need like the Rachel Ray of vegan world. You know, I think that's for sure. I've always thought that Sarah Kramer... Uh, who is a cookbook author, mm-hmm. How It All Began. Uh, she's in Victoria. She should have a TV show, for sure, 100%. She would be amazing at, at a cooking show, like making everything vegan. Like send in your send in your recipe of the week, and she's going to make show you the vegan way to make well, it or whatever. Cool. I always thought that would be 
and then people would try it. Yeah. Well, what you could do one is being vegan on the road. That'd be something for you. That would be great from your mouth to God's ears. All I'm asking <laughs> is 10%. 10%. <laughs> all right. Uh, and to, to wrap it up, this is one that I really like. And you started touching on it earlier when you were talking about being on tour, actually. Um, is it difficult being true to your convictions given the people you sometimes have to work with? So I'm assuming this is, you know, you know the, the rock, and world, rock and roll world. Um, uh, and especially, I think, when you were on tour, again, being... Uh, you know, you're, you're vegan. At the at sometimes you were raw vegan. Uh, you're straight edge, so no drinking, no drugs. Um, was it difficult for you to say this is who I am, this is what I believe, and I will not bend that um, because of the people I'm around or the places I'm around? Never. It's never ever been hard. Not one day. Never. And the people I am around, they always they drink. They always drank on tour. They, you know, we had a, a few guys that, uh, you know, may or may not have smoked marijuana, <laughs> among other things. <laughs> you know what? It's never bothered me. It never will. I don't care. I always kind of just lived by my own code for me. So in a way, you know, being straight edge was, at the time that I was decided to go straight edge, was primarily a couple reasons. One was because, my friend Gail Greenwood was a straight edge. And she was in L7 at the time. Uh, she's from Belly. And uh, she was the coolest person I'd ever met. And she was a straight edge. I was like, I can be a straight edge. At the time, Chai Pig was a straight edge. Mm-hmm. And he was my hero. I was like, that's great. I'm going to be a straight edge too. Like these people, these are my heroes. And I never, ever regretted it for one minute. And as far as being vegan, I was, It'll never change. Everyone around me is not a vegan. And it's never, ever affected whether or not I'm just going to keep eating my spinach leaves. <laughs> <laughs> I happen to like spinach leaves. Well, as long as you're not eating kale. Because um, I I can't do kale. I'm sorry. I've tried. Well, kale, it's, it's okay kind of sometimes if you blend it. The problem I have is how expensive everything is. Oh, that, you know, yeah. In order to do a kale smoothie that's organic with enough bananas to kill the taste <laughs> and to put dates in it, basically you're looking at like a $20 smoothie. Ooh. Other than, And if you don't, it's going to taste like kale. kale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what's worse than kale in a smoothie, believe it or not, is romaine lettuce. Really? It's very strong. It has a very strong smell. Well, see, we uh, in my house we get kale sneaked into food from time to time, and I'm told you can't well, tell you can't as tell the difference. No, I can tell the difference right. between it and spinach. It. It, it, it's got a weird texture. Well, yeah, it's definitely a different texture. Well, I married a boy that trusts me to do all the cooking, and I switched his. He's not a vegan, oh. so I switched his milk. He drinks milk. But I poured rice milk in the milk container for six months. <laughs> and he didn't know. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I... Is, is he going to find out with this podcast now? <laughs> no, he already he already found out. I got busted. But, right. um, but uh, if anyone is wants to uh, switch their family's skim milk for plain, unsweetened 
rice milk, uh, they won't know. So just <laughs> fill the bottle with that. That's my recommendation. I, I feel like this is a, uh, not very nice, but go ahead. If, it feels like a departure from all of the being nice and compassionate stuff to being sneaky and conniving. But it is compassionate, healthy, it's for the health. <laughs> <laughs> to learn more about Biff, her appearances, her music, and her book, check out her website, BiffNaked.com, or look her up on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. That's it for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Biff as much as I did. And remember that you can get your questions asked during Defender Radio interviews by following me on social media at facebook.com slash Defender Radio, Twitter at Defender Radio, and Instagram at Howie Michael. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.